On this week's episode, I chat with Rebecca Bala, author and somatic nervous system regulation coach, about how to implement quick and easy ways to find calm throughout the day. What I think is so important to remember is you can be the best parent in the world. You can have all the emotional regulation tools under your belt. I literally had the book of emotional regulation tools for kids, and I've taught her all the things. But she can't use them all the time and she can't be regulated all the time because that's not how humans are and it's especially not how our little ones are. And so it isn't about, you know, when you have been a, uh, an emotionally intelligent mum who's taught all these skills to the kids. The outcome we're looking for is not a child that is emotionally regulated all the time. We're looking for them to be able to feel their feelings. That's their job and that's it. Our job is just to hold the capacity and the space for that. Hi, and welcome to the Parentologist Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Kim. The Parentologist Podcast is a show about everything parenting with a therapeutic twist. Each episode focuses on a variety of relatable topics, including parenting, family, children, relationships, mental health, and pop culture. Hear from a variety of medical professionals, psychological experts, authors, celebrities, and other parents with inspiring stories. You'll feel like you're in the same room with your friends getting all of your questions answered. You'll laugh, you'll cry, you'll learn, and you'll have fun. Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. I'm so happy that you're here. Thank you so much for having me. It's honestly an honor. I love it. And I love your accent. I think people are going to want to listen to this episode just to hear the soothingness of your accent. I love it. So I just want to tell everybody that you are in New Zealand right now. You were probably the furthest podcast interview I have ever done um, ever on this podcast. So that's just exciting. It's it's crazy because you're literally a day ahead of me right now. So just so everyone puts into perspective, it's about 1 p.m. in California right now in the States. And I think it's the next day, 10 a.m., in the morning for you. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. I'm honestly impressed that you know where it is. When I went and visited the States, the majority of the people had no idea where New Zealand was. I think we're just such a little blip down the bottom of the world. <laughs> oh, what's such a beautiful blip. I mean, you just have the most beautiful lands. And I honestly, I've never been, but I honestly, it's on my bucket travel list and it has been for years um, just because it's just so beautiful. And I would love to visit one day. So when I do, I'm going to email you and we're going to meet for coffee. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Let me know. We make good coffee will. in New Zealand. <laughs> Absolutely. And when you come here, you can always call me and you have a friend. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> but I, I'm just, I've been so excited to talk to you. So your, your Instagram is journey to wellness. And earlier this year, you know, a lot of people make new year's resolutions and, you know, goals for the year and things like that. And I tried something new this year. I've never chosen a word of the year before. And I know a lot of people have, and I don't know if that's a thing in New Zealand, but, you know, choosing a word and an intention for the year is, you know, something that I wanted to do because I, you know, I have a lot of goals and I have a lot of things I want to do, but they all kept coming back to wellness. And I know a lot of people define wellness in lots of different ways, um, but just, you know, overall wellness, whether it's my physical health, my mental health, um, you know, just being the best version of me um, and giving myself grace on the days that that doesn't happen, I feel like it is wellness. So 
I love following you and your advice, and you have so much good advice um, there. But what I want to start with today is talking about your new book, which I am so excited about. Your new book is 100 Ways to Find Calm, How to Use Your Body to Soothe Your Mind. I absolutely love that. Just the title alone makes me want to go out and buy it right now. And I know it's on pre-sale, so anyone who's listening right now can buy it right now on pre-sale. It's coming out at the end of February. Um, But tell us what the book's about and what inspired you to write it and what we can get out of it when we read it. So the book is um, sort of going back to the roots of where my Instagram first started was about illustrating wellness tools and tips and by illustrating them, you make them super accessible and super digestible. And so I wanted a book that just you could open to any page and there would be a bite-sized tool that was easy to read, easy to look at, beautifully illustrated, just something that you could pick up and find something that would soothe anxiety, soothe stress, bring you back when you're feeling kind of flat and unmotivated and a bit stuck. Um, So really just to regulate the nervous system. And so that's what the, the book is. It comprises 101 different tools. They're, um, they're really digestible in that we don't have time to do a practice that takes an hour of our day most of the time, right? It's, it's not achievable. Right. And I think so many people get a little bit stuck um, or they lose motivation in a wellness journey when they feel that it's going to take an hour-long class every day in order to be able to start to regulate their nervous systems. And a lot of us know that we need to do it, but we just don't know where to start and it feels too much. And so for me, it's about how do we weave practices into our day or find ones that don't take us a very long time. And so that's what the book has is all sorts of things. And they're derived from mostly sort of somatic therapy style practices. So that might be things like polyvagal exercises, which, you know, listeners may or may not have heard of, and we can go into that. Um, But things also like breath work and meditation, mindfulness, grounding, yin yoga techniques, um, and just lots of things that help us to process stuck emotions and just to find our calm again. So it's a delicious little Bible. (laughs) I love that. Well, especially as a mom, I know we're both moms. And I think, like you said, for moms, it's hard for us to carve out time during the day to to sit and sometimes, you know, do some of these types of practices that we're told we should do. You know, there's that term that's been floating around and I feel like it's overutilized in society and our culture today, you know, when we talk about self-care. Like, oh, well, you know, you're stressed out as a mom. Okay, well, why don't you just go self-care? Why don't you But what does that even look like? And how do we achieve that? And, you know, sometimes it sounds so overwhelming cuz it's one more thing we have to add to our list to do in our day, you know? Um, so what are maybe some of your favorite, um, I guess, little digestible nuggets that you have in your book that, you know, are really good for moms? Cause I know sometimes, like you said, we have to weed them throughout the day. So sometimes in the past I've told moms, you know, well, when you're doing the dishes or when you're cooking dinner for your family, you know, maybe listen, listen to some soothing music, you know, while you're doing it, or maybe doing some breath work while you're doing it. But from your expertise, what would you tell a mom that, has had just a stressful day and just needs to find their calm again after after a long day. What what could they do to weave it into their day where it's not something extra that they have to think about? I love that. And 
I often like you hear it called habit stacking. And I think that's such a, a good way to do it is think about something that you do in your day, just like you said, when you're unloading the dishwasher and stack a regulation practice on top of it. Um, so one of the tools in the book is called the boiling breather. And so it's when you hit the jug and it starts boiling, I know what I usually do, and I'm sure that you do and lots of other mums do, is we grab our phone and we're like checking social media while it's boiling, or we're checking the calendar, or we've raced off to do something else. And it's it feels like it's a race. And our nervous system responds to that. It feels like we are in threat mode. And so the boiling breather is when you hit the jug, can you just stand beside the jug and tune into your body, tune into your senses, listen to the jug boiling, and in that time, come into some breath work or come into some butterfly taps, you know, when you cross your arms, cross your chest, and alternately tap your shoulders with your hands. Come into a little containment hug where you tuck your hand under your armpit and wrap yourself in a hug. Or a really easy one to do is the physiological sigh. So when we, uh, you know, if you probably had it when you've had a big cry or you've had a big release and you do that little breath in followed by a short other breath in at the top and then you sort of sigh and we can create that as a breath to, to regulate and release. And one that I do um, quite often because I certainly experience this and I know a lot of mums do is that real sensory overload because you're being touched all day or demanded of all day or there's the tv going and mom 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 can you love it? You know? <laughs> so there's so much sensory extractor fan is going while you're cooking I think we yeah. all have yeah yeah I think especially when you're an HSP like a highly sensitive person or you're a sensory avoidant so that one thing I do is at the end of the day if I've had a sensory overload day is instead of just having a normal shower where honestly most of the time when I have a shower at night I forget if I've washed myself and end up washing myself like three times because you're just on autopilot Mm -hmm. so instead I would light a candle in the bathroom or have a light going you know in the bedroom outside the ensuite turn off all the other lights so it's really dim have the shower not too high pressured I might have music going, but if I'm overloaded, I probably won't. And the shower becomes a totally immersive sensory grounding experience with a, with a lot less stimulation than usual. So we can weave little things like this into our day by either stacking them on top of things we already do, like every time you get in the car, you put your hand on your belly and take 10 breaths. All those things, right, we can weave them in or we can carve out little moments like that low stimulation sensory shower and give ourselves a five to 15 minute practice where we actively do something that's either soothing or that processes stuck emotions or dysregulation from the day. Wow. I love both of those. I love all the examples that you shared. And I'm, I'm picturing people doing them at home right now, you know, you know, the, the, the butterfly taps and, you know, even the shower. I mean, that sounds amazing right now, you know, and I feel like whether it's the beginning of the day to kind of set the day off in the right direction, or like you said, the end of the day, when we just need to, when we've just been dysregulated all day because of all the things like, you know, that just something very tangible that, that we can do and, and, you know, easily do, um, you know, in those moments or we carve out the time to do them. 
what do you tell a parent or, you know, a- anyone really who's, who's listening, they don't have to be a parent to do any of these exercises to find their calm, but what would you tell someone who comes back to you and says, I can't let my mind go? You know, because we talk about meditation and mindfulness and we talk about just being present and being in the moment. I think that's really hard for people, especially in this day and age of social media and being overstimulated all the time with everything. <clears throat> what? How do you calm your mind down when it seems virtually impossible to, you know, because I, I know I tried, I tried meditation once and many times, but this one time I remember, and I just could hear things in the background, like my kids fighting, or, you know, I would hear things in the background, a doorbell would ring, or my notification went off that my Amazon, you know, delivery was, was just delivered, you know? <laughs> so it's just like, there's just these constant, like, I couldn't just be present. I mean, I was present, I was hearing all those things, but I yeah. couldn't be inside my mind. So how do we slow down enough, even if it's just for two minutes, to just literally have a blank slate? Or is that even possible? Or is that what you suggest we do in those moments of, of meditation and mindfulness? I think you've asked like such an important question. And I get this question from members a lot when they say we're trying to do maybe like a meditation or a mindfulness practice. And I just can't, I can't, I feel so anxious or I feel racy. My mind won't stop. And so what you're um, asking is perfect because there's a missing piece of the puzzle when it comes to regulating our nervous system that's been in a stress response state. So if it's in sympathetic nervous system state, which is either fight or flight, then the very feeling of that is very racy, right? So it's like, I have to do this. I have to move. Things are, things are happening. I've got to get going. I've got to get out of here or I'm irritated. And so your mind or your state of your thoughts is a reflection of the state of your nervous system. And so when they're racing and fast, and I I often talk about this river of mind, like so you picture your mind like a river, and when the thoughts are like raging rapids and all of that, that's a stress state. Mm -hmm. And so when we then go, right, okay, I noticed that I'm doing this, now I need to sit and breathe and chill out and be calm. That's what most of us think we need to do when we're stressed. We've got to meditate. I've got to do some present grounding mindfulness. So you sit and be still and your body interprets that as incredibly threatening. Because if you think about if you're in a flight state, every single cell in your body is telling you to run from a threat, from a danger, or to mobilize and to take action. And so trying to get yourself to sit and be still and still your mind is so, so threatening to the nervous system. It's the exact opposite of what it's trying to do to keep you alive. And so what I suggest people do, if that's their experience of meditation or mindfulness, is either put that on the back burner for a bit and do something a little bit like more of an active mindfulness or meditation, or first you have to complete the stress response. You can't go into mindfulness straight away. So completing the stress response is what you do when you get to move through the anxiety or the anger. As opposed to saying, it needs to stop, I need to do something to stop it. You say, okay, it makes sense that this is here. You know, my body, my mind is overloaded. It feels threatened. And so if it's anger, 
you know, you do pillow squeezes or pillow throws or you push against a wall or you contract all of your muscles up or you do somatic shaking, you shake your body or you stomp or you do something that moves that adrenaline and cortisol through. Same thing with anxiety. It wants you to run. So first you might go for a walk or again, you come into some shaking through the body. So you do something that kind of allows you to do the mobilization piece and move some of that energy through. And then afterwards, you might try to come into calm and regulation. And again, if you're still feeling it's hard to be still, you might sit and sway or tap or just do something that gives you a little bit of movement. And then the piece of, you know, the meditation or the being with thoughts, you allow them. So when you're there and you're still noticing the dishwasher's beeping and the kids are fighting and the blimmin' dog's barking at the post again, you just simply notice it and go, okay, I'm noticing that I'm having those thoughts about that. I notice my attention has gone there. Maybe even, ah, oh, I notice there's a little tightness creeping back into my chest. I'm just going to be with that. I'll just be with the tightness in my chest. I'll be with the thoughts. And then I'll bring myself back perhaps to breath, perhaps to some somatic movement. And that's really the practice of mindfulness or meditation when we get there. It's not ever about having a clear or blank slate, but it's about can I be with what's coming up and work with it? And that's also how we process emotions too is, okay, where do I feel that annoyance that I'm getting distracted? It's in my throat. My throat's tight. I'm just going to be with that for a bit, see what that feels like. How does that change over time? And that, and then that, keep coming back to mindfulness, breath, and that allows us to do it. But and yeah, I think that's the missing piece for so many people is just trying to move straight into calm or that being the goal was almost a problem. You know, when we think, I have, I'm going to do this regulation exercise and at the end of it, I'm going to check in and make sure all the anxiety and stress is gone. And then the very fact that we check for the anxiety, we're like, ah, oh, it's there again. So that's right. resistance. So it keeps coming back. So the goal isn't that we have to always be calm at the end of doing something. The goal is that we can be with it. We can maybe give ourselves some regulation and maybe we feel even just two points down the scale we don't have to always get back to a zero over time that builds our it's called like a window of tolerance so over time we get better at regulating but I think people need to take the pressure off it kind of looking a certain way or ending up and feeling like you're floating on a little zen cloud which is just not realistic Right. And I think there is that misconception out there, really. I mean, even for me, who's a, you know, a, a doctoral level trained there, you know, licensed therapist. And I, I give advice like this for a living of, you know, how, how people can, you know, calm their minds. Now, I don't have a somatic background. Um, but, you know, I, I, I'm very familiar with it. And, you know, even for me in that, in the midst of a stressful moment, I don't take my own advice. You know, it's really hard to do it in the moment. I think, you know, it's just, it's yeah. hard. It's, and I think a lot of us have a hard time stopping. We feel like if we're not being productive or if we are pausing, then that means that we're not being effective or that, you know, we don't have time for it. It raises our anxiety because we think we do have to slow down more. And I think, a pitfall that I'll speak for myself that sometimes parents get into 
is expecting that of our children, expecting that when they're in the middle of a temper tantrum or a meltdown or they're just dysregulated for whatever reason, maybe they're overstimulated from something or by something. And we just say, okay, our anxiety rises because of it. And then we almost kind of quickly force them to calm down. Maybe we're in the middle of a grocery store and we're embarrassed because, you know, they're kicking and flailing and screaming and, you know, we're, no, just be quiet, just be quiet. Like, or, you know, let's go to the car. And it's like a shameful response that we get um, when our anxiety rises. And I think we have unrealistic expectations of others when we're, when they're in that heightened moment. Do you find that way too? I know you have a lot of children's books and I don't know if it talks about the same type of topics, but do you feel like that happens a lot? Or even for yourself being a mom of, of a little one that we kind of have the, have those expectations, maybe unrealistic expectations of children when they're dysregulated, or do you have any advice on that for, for moms out there that expect that of their children, not just of themselves? Oh, a hundred. I was nodding furiously when you were saying that, especially that piece about the supermarket, because it's kind of one of my like funny, but shameful, but relatable moments was I remember going into a supermarket with my wee girl and she was probably three at the time. I had just released my um, second children's book called Big Feelings. So it's literally, I wrote the book on big feelings for children, right? And (laughs) so I just released that and we were in the supermarket and she wanted to pack the bag. I didn't realize she lost it, like absolutely lost it. I was that mom that everyone was looking at. I think we've probably all been there. And I remember at this moment, here's my ultimate, I'm sharing this parent shame with you. I crouched down and I was like, stop stop it now or I'm going to take your toys off you when we get home. And then I was like, in my head, I was like, I literally wrote the, the book on this. People are going to be looking at me and if they recognize me, they're going to judge me. And I couldn't <laughs> believe that those words came out of my head, out of my mouth. All I wanted was for her to stop. And so no, there is no shame on parents who feel this or they've said that to their kids. It's like, okay, we, we do that, right? We all make mistakes and we all sometimes hold those expectations too highly of our little ones but what I think is so important to remember is you can be the best parent in the world you can have all the emotional regulation tools under your belt I literally had the book of emotional regulation tools for kids and I've taught her all the things but she can't use them all the time and she can't be regulated all the time because that's not how humans are and it's especially not how our little ones are and so it isn't about, you know, when you have been a, uh, an emotionally intelligent mum who's taught all these skills to the kids. The outcome we're looking for is not a child that is emotionally regulated all the time. We're looking for them to be able to feel their feelings. That's their job and that's it. Our job is just to hold the capacity and the space for that. And you're also allowed to feel a bit tipped up and dysregulated by that yourself too. But coming back to what are my tools to feel regulated in this moment so that we can do co-regulation, so that I can just be here in a calm, safe, leader, sturdy presence, and they can feel all their feelings, and at the end, maybe we'll do something that's calming. But when they've totally lost it and they're in that full tantrum mode, there's no amount of good parenting or tools we can use that they just need to write it out. Just like we do when we get really upset, we just need a good cry. 
And so, yeah, it's really easy just to have those expectations of them being able to regulate themselves more, but they just truly don't have the brain development to do it. And I think as well, a lot of this comes down to us as parents having to do quite a bit of work on reparenting ourselves. Many of us, well, I'm in my 30s, so I think many of us maybe grew up if we were in that era or uh, um, older where this wasn't around in our childhoods and we weren't taught how to regulate emotions. And in fact, many of us were still told if you are upset or angry, you go away. And it's, so it's not acceptable to be around other people when you feel like that and you go process it yourself and you certainly don't yell in front of adults. or So a lot of us are still holding that. And so it comes out really unconsciously with our kids when they trigger us because when we're dysregulated, we fall back into old wired patterns really easily. So we have those little entrenched narratives like, get over it, pull your socks up. You know, I don't know. I'm sure that's an American narrative and not just a Kiwi one where it's kind of like, yeah, square your shoulders. Go to your room. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So we've got to kind of hold that, give ourselves the compassion and grace that we're also working through reparenting that in ourselves, where actually a lot of us are still learning how to fully regulate our own nervous systems, let alone our little people. So yeah, very normal to have it. Yes. And I've been there too. I've been there too. And then, you know, I'm always thinking, oh my gosh, does someone know what I do for a living or someone recognize <laughs> me from Instagram? And I'm thinking, I hope they don't because I look like a really bad parent right now. And not to, you know, there's no shame. And, you know, I hate even saying bad parent because we are all, we're all yeah. trying to do our best, you know, and, and sometimes, you know, like you said, those natural instincts come back and from our own upbringing or, you know, just, you know, just yeah. that panic moment you go into when, yeah. you know, and, and, and almost feeling like a little helpless as a parent, like I can't calm my child down. That must mean something I'm doing wrong. And we take it internally too. And, you know, that's, that's not. It. That's it. It triggers a lot yeah. of your own inner critic stuff, imposter syndrome stuff. And we also, you have to remember as well that we are going to make mistakes. You're going to make mistakes as a parent because you're human, but you also have this beautiful superpower and this tool that we get to use of repair. And so we get to then say, you know, honey, I'm, I'm really sorry. You know, I should not have said that to you. It wasn't okay for mommy to say that or to raise her voice or whatever you did. Just I'm, I'm going to really work on, that's not your responsibility. I got a little angry. I'm going to work on dealing with that myself, take some breaths next time. Um, you know, we can do that repair piece. And it teaches them as well and it models. You can be wrong. You can say that you're wrong. You can apologize. You can repair. You can fix. So it's all beautiful stuff that you get to do even when we make a mistake. Exactly. And it's, it is that role modeling, I think is such a huge piece. And, you know, cause there's, I have a whole podcast episode on shame-free parenting, like how to parent without shaming your children, right? Like saying, if you want to cry, go to your room, like we were talking about earlier, you know, um, to handle things, emotions on your own. And even just being able to teach kids what that emotion looks like or how to handle it and saying, I didn't handle it this the, the way that I wanted to, this is, I should have done this instead. And it gives them that that perspective of, oh, there is a different option. I don't have to be this way because then that obviously leads to to trauma and other things. And, you know, we can go into all sorts of topics from there. But let me ask you this. Um, you have a piece on um, social media uh, about, uh, revolving around sensory seeking. 
So a lot of times what we've been talking about is, you know, how to calm our bodies down, you know, when we're overstimulated, overstressed, um, you know, anxious, all the things that we feel as, as a parent on a regular basis, most likely, you know, the goal would be to calm down. But how do you handle being calm when you are a sensory seeker? And if you want to describe, you know, to everyone what that is and then how to go about doing that, I know sometimes it can look a little bit different. So I just wanted to get your perspective on that. Yeah, our, our nervous system, I guess, it, you can be both sensory seeker and a sensory avoider and move between the two and avoid some things and seek others. And it's just really like, just, it's really, really normal. And it's just the way that your nervous system sort of wants different types of input in order to soothe it or to regulate it. And so sensory seeking might look like when we sort of pick at things. I know a lot of people resonate with picking their hair, their skin on their lips, their nails. You pick a scab off your skin. Um, things also like seeking out salty or sweet foods when we're, especially if you're bored or emotional, um, to, to seek out something to eat for it. You might be someone who fidgets a lot, who tucks your legs up underneath you when you sit, who puts a pillow on you when you sit on the couch, um, who sways or moves. Um, also things like dopamine seeking, which is where you might love like the hit of online shopping or, you know, getting that Amazon um, delivery. <laughs> I know that's one of those little things I have to confess to. I get so excited waiting for the post. We're <laughs> um, doom scrolling on social media or binging Netflix. So all these things are the nervous system seeking some kind of input through the senses. And then sensory avoidant is more kind of what we were talking about earlier when you've had a really overloaded kind of day and you're avoiding things like sounds and the extractor fan and you don't want to kind of be touched out all the time and um, you don't like bright lights and things like that. So I see these both as definitely nothing to like pathologize or say, oh goodness, something's wrong if you're doing one of these things. They're, they're both really normal. But then we can also see them as like little signals, sometimes little red flags from the nervous system. That it's it's that's how the nervous system communicates, not through, you know, we can't talk to it. We do it through the language of movement and through the body. And so it sends you these signals. And so it's about if it's become destructive in your life or you do it too much or, you know, you, and you, we know what that's like. We've all fallen into the trap of spending too much time doom scrolling or, you know, I got into this once. I was keep picking the skin on my lips and then I, when my lips would hurt. I'm like, okay, this isn't, you know, this is too much. So those are, when it gets to there, we think, okay, there's a root cause underneath this. There's a need that this is signaling that I need to address in a more healthy way. And I have a guide on this actually in my in my store to find the root causes. And I also have a free guide on um, sensory soothing. And so what you can do is you can find out your dominant sense, the one that kind of either stimulates you the most or soothes you the most, and then just find other healthy coping strategies, which I've got hundreds of them in the guide, that you can sub in so that you're still trying to meet the need and meet the root cause, not just slap a Band-Aid on it, but that you can do something that's more helpful to your nervous system than the picking or the kind of isolating from sensory avoidance. 
Yeah, I love that. I love that you have guides on that. I'm actually going to print that out myself and use it because I'm a nail biter. That's my you know go to when I'm driving in the car for a long time, or if I am very anxious, I'll start biting my nails or the skin around my nails, or I'll start kind of just playing with my hair a lot. And now mm-hmm. I see my daughter doing it, and it's very interesting to me that you know, I, you know, I'm always fascinated if it's, you know, learned or hereditary or whatnot, or a combination of both, but I definitely see her doing it. And so I'm giving her other coping skills on how to handle, like you said, in kind of maybe a more healthy way. Um, but then I notice myself doing it. I'm like, no, I can't. Cause then she'll call me out. She's old enough now where she, you know, mom, stop biting your nails, you know, do what you told me to do. And I'm like, oh yeah, you're right. <laughs> so a uh, future therapist in the making, but um, but I think it's good to know what one that we are, because sometimes I think people don't know if they are, you know, sensory avoidant or if they're a sensory seeker. So I think that's the first place to start and where to go. Um, we're almost out of time, but I do have one more question for you, because I know you touched about it recently on social media as well. And it's something I feel it like comes up a lot when I talk to other moms or just other parents um, that need to soothe or need to calm their mind before bedtime. I feel like sleep is such an imperative part on how we parent the next day. I know if I don't have Mm. enough sleep, I am irritable. Don't come near me. My husband knows to avoid me. My kids are like, oh, she probably (laughs) didn't get enough sleep. Like everyone knows when mom didn't get enough sleep last night. So what are some, maybe some quick tips you can give on how we can calm our minds and our bodies so we can get a good night's sleep? And I know sometimes our kids wake up in the middle of the night and, uh, you know, good night's sleep is sometimes foreign for moms. But on an average night when we probably can get a good six to eight hours of sleep, how can we set ourselves up to have a successful sleep at night? That is such a good question. And I know I feel so sorry for the mums who are still in the sleep deprivation stage. We're still in the stage where Micah wakes up in the night sometimes, but man, those younger years are brutal. So um, sleep is taking kids waking out of it. Sleep is a reflection of the state of our nervous system in the day. So a good sleep at night does start with what we do earlier in the day too. So my first tip, I guess, is just to be a little bit more mindful of what your day looks like. If you just are full stress all day, full of to-do lists and racing and rushing, and then you collapse at the end of the day and doom scroll or watch Netflix until 11 and then you go to bed and your mind probably races. You're probably tired but wired. It has to start earlier. You've got to give the mind times where you can calm it. So bring in somatic regulation throughout the day and give yourself at least a half hour before bed where the screens are away and you're doing something that signals to your brain we're starting to wind down for sleep. And it also gives it the space to have some thinking time if it needs it. So instead of being distracted by by your phone so you don't want to think, it comes racing in when your head hits the pillow. So just give it some time. It might be you put at seven o'clock after you've had dinner, you have worry time where you sit down and you journal. So do some of that stuff earlier. And then in your wind down routine, just kind of stick to just a few do's and don'ts of sleep. And so do use your bed only for sleep and sex. And maybe, are we all having sex anymore? I don't know. But <laughs> we've got kids. But that. <laughs> <laughs> maybe reading your book but not for scrolling and watching movies or doing your work at the end of the day doing your emails so your brain needs to have an association that your bed is just for sleeping and relaxing so keep that there um try to go to the try to go to bed at the same time each night try to wake up around the same time each day 
and maybe just have your chamomile. It's all those sort of classic sleep hygiene tips that we all know we should do. Um, But if something's blocking you from doing them, then try to just weave in regulation earlier in your day as well, because it really is a reflection of what happens in the day. All of your dreams are emotional processing. If you're having really disturbed sleep and you're waking up a lot, then your body's kind of trying to do too much. So it needs more help in the day. Yeah. I love that. Well, I know I'm going to be using your tips. Um, I've already have in mind of what I want to try as soon as we, you know, get off this recording and what I'm going to do, you know, for the rest of my day to set myself up for, you know, emotional and physical wellness, you know, throughout my day and throughout my sleep. So um, thank you again for sharing all of your wisdom. Will you just tell everybody where they can find you online, get your e-guides, get your books um, and or other advice um, that they can get from you? So if you head to www.journeytowellness.online, that's my website and you'll see I've got heaps and heaps of courses there on emotional regulation. There's a somatic course people can take. There's links to all the books um, and they can find me on Instagram at journeytowellness. I love it. Well, thank you. I hope everyone is already scrolling on their phone only to follow you. (laughs) And then they can get off and do some regulation exercises. But go on Instagram right now. Go ahead and follow her. Um, Pre-order her new book. Um, I'm going to be doing the same. I can't wait to read it and, um, and, and start implementing those practices in my life. So thank you again so much for being here and sharing all of that with us today. Oh, thank you so much, Kim. Thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for joining me today. I cannot wait for you to listen to more episodes. If you are a new listener, I recommend starting at my best of year one episode first. Then make sure to subscribe so you don't miss a thing. And when you love an episode, please leave a review. And if you want to stay connected between episodes, please visit me on social media at The Parentologist and on my blog at theparentologist.com. This podcast is not intended to be a replacement for therapy. If you or someone you know is in crisis, please call 911.